This is the first of two messages on continuity and discontinuity. There was a book published titled Continuity and Discontinuity, and it was kind of a very even book. The format was a dispensationalist and a covenant theologian both wrote on the same subject, and it was about seven or eight subjects. Uh, a lot of the writers really, I don't think, understood the problem of discontinuity and continuity and wasn't worth reading, but there are two or three chapters in the book that are really worth the price of the whole book. And the, inter the guy who edited it, he really did understand, and he said this in his introduction. There's hardly an issue that is more fundamental to theology and Old and New Testament scholars than this one. The more one moves in the continuity direction, the more covenantal he becomes. And the more he moves in the discontinuity direction, the more dispensational he becomes. And I think most people would agree with that observation. The bottom line in this subject is how do we read the Old Testament scriptures, especially books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus? How do we relate what the prophets of old said to what the New Testament prophets said in the New Testament scriptures. You've probably heard a preacher say, I believe the Bible says what it means and means what it says. And sometimes they will say, the Bible says that I believe it, that ends the argument. And that's really not very good advice. The major problem isn't understanding what the Bible says, it's understanding what the Bible means when it says what it says. A lady asked me a question one time, I remember, and I said, well, what does scripture say? She says, Pastor, I know what the scripture says, but I don't know what it means. That's what I'm asking you for. God told Israel to do and not do a lot of things that he doesn't want the church to do and not to do today. Years ago, I met a young engineer who had been converted to reading a Gideon Bible in a motel room. He didn't know any evangelical Christians and had never been directly confronted with the gospel. And he read that and was converted and he went home and he told his wife, we're gonna read the Bible, we're gonna do exactly what it says. And of course he started to read at the beginning where most people read books from the beginning and he started in the book of Genesis. They got to the food laws and his wife says, either the Bible goes or I go. <laughs> And under the providence of God, he met a Christian at work who knew something about the change of covenants and the switch, and it saved his marriage as well as his confession of faith in Christ. If you, if you try that, it says what it means, it means what it says routine, on passages like Matthew 5, 29, and 30, you'll discover it's not very good advice because before the end of the day, you're gonna be blind and without both of your hands. All agree that every law, every ceremony, and every promise given to Israel is not necessarily given to the church, but how do I know the difference between the two? And more importantly, why is this one not given and are not rescinded, and why is the other one is rescinded? How do I know what continues from the old to the new? How do I read the Old Testament scriptures? First of all, we have to be sure that we understand our terms. And, and this is one of the problems all the time, but it's especially true in this particular subject. 
is the old referring to the Old Testament scriptures? Are we discussing how much of the Old Testament scriptures is brought over into the New Testament scriptures? And the answer is no. Is the Old Testament scriptures the Bible for the Jews and the New Testament scripture the Bible for the church? No. Is the old referring to the scriptures called the old, what the scriptures call the old covenant and asking how much of the old covenant is brought over into the new covenant? And the answer there would be yes. Are these two things the same, the old covenant and the old testament? Are they the same thing? Not at all. They're two totally different things. Are these two things saying the same thing? No. Our study involves specific laws and practices that were given to Israel, such as the Sabbath, tithing, polygamy, and so on. Do the laws in the Pentateuch govern the life of a Christian in the same sense that they govern an Israelite? Does one law fit all? And I would say no. Do we divide up the law of Moses into three codes of laws, moral, ceremonial, judicial, keep the moral code, continuity, rescind the other two, discontinuity? The answer is no. Are the promises made to Abraham and his seed to give the land of Palestine to Israel still in effect today? Answering that question involves continuity and discontinuity. Let me read again the first three things and just answer. Is the old referring to the Old Testament scriptures? No. Is the old referring to the old covenant? No. Are these two things saying the same thing? No. It's essential that we not confuse Old Covenant and Old Testament because they're two things differently. Basically, the words, old, the words covenant and testament mean the same thing linguistically. But when you add the word new and old to the word testament and covenant, then you have two entirely different things, and the certain terms mean something different than they do when they stand alone. The phrases Old and New Testament, as they're commonly used today, have no biblical basis. Most translations of the Bible do not use either the phrase Old Testament or New Testament. The King James uses Old Testament one time, 2 Corinthians 3.14, and uses New Testament six times. The NIV never uses either the phrase Old Testament or New Testament. In every case where the King James says Testament, the NIV says Covenant. Using the phrase Old Testament and New Testament interchangeably, uh, using the phrase Old and New Testament interchangeably with Old and New Covenant creates problems. One of the major ones directly affects our study. The phrase Old Testament, Old and New Testament are used to describe the division in our Bible. It is a purely literary term. The flyleaf of most older printings of the Bible will say, quote, the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments. And what they mean is Old and New Covenants, I think, sometimes. The NIV in its flyleaf says, contents, the book of the Old and New Testament, the, book, the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. Now it's too late in history to get rid of calling the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures but that's what we ought to call them. And it's too late to get to call the 27 books of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. We ought to say the 39 books written before Christ came, the 27 books written after Christ came, but we ought not to use the word testament when it means the same thing linguistically as covenant. The major problem surfaces when you make these two things to be synonymous in your thinking and then you preach, the old covenant is totally finished, it's totally gone, 
the hearers will hear you saying the Old Testament scriptures are totally gone. Throw out your Old Testament. We don't need it anymore. Unfortunately, I think there's some people who verge on that very thing. We must be careful to emphasize that within the Old Testament scriptures, within the 39 books of the Bible written before Christ came, there is an old covenant. And that old covenant begins in, uh, in Exodus chapter 20, and that finishes when Christ came. We must be careful to emphasize that and not confuse the two. Summary this way, summarize it this way. The old covenant is totally done away. So if we're discussing covenants, we have 100% discontinuity. A covenant replaces another covenant, an old covenant, and everything that covenant brings into being is finished when the covenant is finished and the new covenant has taken its place. There is 100% continuity if we're talking about covenants. If we're discussing the Old Testament scriptures, then it all remains a vital part of our verbally inspired Bible and we have 100% continuity. And make those distinctions very clearly in your mind. The 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures were and are and always will be an equal and essential part of the inspired word of God and part of the Christian's rule of life. We have one verbally inspired Bible that has 66 books. We do not have a Jewish Bible containing 39 books and a Christian Bible containing 27 books. I try to remember when I'm preaching to never say Old Testament without adding the word scriptures. And I never say refer to the 39 books as the Old Covenant. Log this into your computer brain and push a button. One, Old Testament means the scriptures written before Christ. Old Covenant equals the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. The first remains. The first remains. The second is gone. The first is total continuity. The second is total discontinuity. Two, the Old Covenant was given only to Israel, not to Gentiles. It established Israel as a nation, a body politic. It included a land grant, a whole system of government and worship. The Israelites were the children of Abraham, but they were not a nation as a body politic until they entered into covenant relationship with God at Sinai. Three, everything that the Old Covenant established was done away when Messiah came. It was done away because it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his person, in his work. Don't confuse God's eternal purpose and sovereign grace to save his one elect people with the theological covenant of grace. We believe the former and not the latter. In other words, I think people confuse the fact that there is a un one unchanging purpose of God, one sovereign electing grace, but don't confuse that with the covenant of grace. There's two different things, theologically. Nearly everything in the old covenant was prophesied as being eternal, as lasting forever. The priesthood was an everlasting priesthood, the Passover, the Sabbath, the people, the land. It was all eternal, and it was eternal as it found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ in typology. Covenant theology wants a total continuity between Israel, the Jewish church, and the Christian church is one church. They also want a total continuity in the commonly called moral law, 
which enables them to bring the Ten Commandments, which they call the moral law, including the Sabbath, over into the church. Why is the topic of continuity and discontinuity so difficult? And my answer would be because continuity is so wedded to covenant theology. <clears throat> continuity is covenant theology. It's impossible to discuss biblical continuity and discontinuity without discussing covenant theology. The moment we start any discussion on the law of God or the covenants made with man, we run into two words in the confession that clouds the whole issue. And those two words are commonly called. Let me give you two examples. This is a Westminster Confession of Faith. Besides this law, and by that they mean the Ten Commandments, besides this law commonly called moral. Now that's how you accomplish continuity. You create a theological term, moral law, which has no biblical basis, has no accidental basis in scripture. <clears throat> and then you state that this term, since it's commonly called, commonly used, Therefore, you can treat it as if it were a text of scripture. Now this isn't intentional, but this is the effect. <coughs> if you are a Presbyterian, you're very welcome here. <laughs> but if you're a Presbyterian, you have committed yourself to believing that the Westminster Confession of Faith is the true expression of scripture. <coughs> If you go to a presbytery meeting and there is a discussion on a problem or something, if you can prove your point with a reference to the confession of faith or a reference to the catechism, that's the same as proving it with the text of scripture. And don't, don't, don't say that the Presbyterian, or that I'm saying the Presbyterian believes the, their confession is inspired, that's not true. But they treat it as if it were. It's one and the same thing as far as authority is concerned. <coughs> the words commonly called has effectively taken any discussion of the law of God out of the realm of biblical exegesis and put it into the realm of logic and systematic theology. Here's another example. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, that is the covenant of works with Adam, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the common of grace, the, the covenant of grace. What was commonly called by theologians has now become equal in authority with the words that God has said. Now neither of these terms, moral law or covenant of grace, were ever commonly called that by any writer of scripture, Old or New Testament. The truth of continuity demands that they be accepted. Let me illustrate what I mean. Why does anybody believe in infant baptism? John Murray gives the standard answer, and notice the word continuity. The crucial issue concerns the baptism of infants, and on this Baptists offer vigorous dissent the argument in support of infant baptism is based upon the essential unity and continuity of the covenant of grace. 
That's the basis of covenant theology's infant baptism, the continuity of the covenant of grace. The conclusion derived from the unity and continuity of the covenant of grace is that the same privileges belong to the infant seed of believers under the new covenant. These considerations are the ground for the property or propriety and validity of infant baptism. In other words, this is grounded not in texts of scripture, but in a application of the continuity of the one covenant of grace. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology, when discussing infant baptism, makes an amazing omission. The difficulty of this subject, that is infant baptism, is that baptism from its very nature involves a profession of faith. It's the way in which by the ordinance of Christ he is to be confessed before men. But infants are incapable of making a confession. Therefore, they're not the proper subjects of baptism. Or to state the matter in another form, the sacraments belong to the members of the church, but the church is the company of believers. Infants cannot exercise faith, therefore they're not members of the church and consequently ought not to be baptized. Are you getting what this is saying? No, this is, this is Hodge saying this. This is not me criticizing him. You would say, man, he's painted himself into a corner. Let me continue with what he said. In order to justify the baptism of infants, we must attain and authenticate such an idea of the church as that it shall include the children of believing parents. It's amazing that he admits it. <laughs> and guess what? Guess what? Hodge and his Pado-Baptist brethren invent a doctrine of the church that includes infants as bona fide members. This is an example of good and necessary consequences deduced, not from scriptures, which would be a legitimate use of it, but from your theology. The continuity of the one people of God, Israel is the church, is the ground of infant baptism along with the one covenant of grace. Hodge then argues that it's not the purpose of God that the visible church on earth should consist exclusively of true believers. And here he confuses a church knowingly receiving unsaved people into membership and being fooled. In other words, he says that no church on this earth can guarantee that every one of his members is regenerate, therefore God doesn't require regenerate membership, that's nonsense. It is one thing to take in to membership a person who has fooled the government, not fooled the, the people who have interviewed him and, and, has, and has deceived them, that's one thing. It's another thing to say a wife of an un, uh, the wife of a saved man and the children of a saved man are automatically members of the church. That's an entirely different thing. Let me give you another example in the Westminster Confession of Faith. G.I. Williamson wrote a very popular book on a commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. <clears throat> and commenting on chapter 19 of the Confession that's discussing the liberty that the Christian has when compared with an old covenant believer, he insists on continuity. Quote, there is an increased degree of liberty belonging to the New Testament believer, but this increase of liberty 
is due to the abrogation of the ceremonial law, which was borne by the Old Testament believer and not the New Testament, and not because of any essential difference in their deliverance from the moral law. He's just, he just cut the throat of New Covenant theology. He's just cut the throat of the New Covenant belief. There must be continuity in the moral law. That's what he's saying. So he says here, this is not because of any essential difference in their deliverance of the moral law from sin or from death. Now that's an example of total continuity in the area of commonly called moral law. That's an example. Let me give you a quotation from John Stott, which says the exact opposite. By the way, John Stott, I think, is one of the best exegetes of scripture, well worth reading anything he wrote. This freedom, he's commenting in Galatians chapter five, verse one, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. This freedom, as the whole epistle in this context makes plain, is not primarily a freedom from sin, but rather a freedom from the law. What Christ has done in liberating us, according to Paul's emphasis here, is not so much to set our will free from the bondage of sin as to set our conscience free from the guilt of sin. The Christian freedom he describes is freedom of conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view of winning the favor of God. It's the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. He continues, since Christ set us free and that for freedom, we must stand fast in it and not submit to a yoke of slavery. In other words, we are to enjoy the glorious liberty of conscience which Christ has brought us by his forgiveness. We must not lapse into the idea that we have to win our acceptance with God by our obedience. The picture seems to be of an ox bowed down under a heavy yoke. Once it has been freed from that crushing yoke, it is able to stand erect once again. Leviticus 26, 13. It is just so in the Christian life. At one time we were under the yoke of the law, and that's not the ceremonial law, as the other writer is trying, as Williamson is trying to convince us. That's not at all. At one time we were under the yoke of the law, burdened by its demands which we could not meet and by its fearful condemnation because of our disobedience. But Christ met the demands of the law for us. He died for our disobedience and thus bore our condemnation in our place. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And now he has struck the yoke from our shoulders and set us free to stand upright, how can we dream of putting ourselves under the law again and submitting to its cruel yoke? Isn't that good stuff? Not say amen if I were you. <laughs> Williamson is correctly expressing the doctrine of the Westminster Confession. The following quote is a classic example of continuity that denies the reality of the unique blessings of the new covenant. And here's the confession. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also is their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, 
but a childlike love willing mind. And somebody's about ready to say, now, John Riesinger, I hope, I hope you're not going to try to disagree with that and take that apart. I agree with every word of that. Do you? Did you agree with what I just read? Huh? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are things that we have, that every new covenant believer has. Now, here's the next line. All which were common to believers under the law. <laughs> they had every one of those blessings. We just have them to a little bit more degree. In other words, the, the, the veil wasn't totally closed in the Old Covenant. It was open a crack, and now it's open wider. Under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the moral law. That's not the yoke. Jesus didn't shed his blood so I could eat bacon with my eggs. He shed his blood so that I could freely come into the presence of God, robed in the righteousness of Christ with a conscience free. Freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. So that is greater boldness of access. There was no access. When the covenant came into being and Israel's nation, Israel's conscience is wedded to the law, there was no access into the most holy place except through one representative once a year. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 7. Into the second, that is into the second part of the tabernacle, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood which he offered for himself, but for the heirs of the people. Now catch this verse. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing. What was all that whole system of the tabernacle teaching? What was that whole business of the veil and the most holy place and the altar of sacrifice? What was all that teaching? That there was no access into the presence of a holy God. See, we, we, we don't emphasize enough that the religion of Judaism was not, was not a come and welcome. It was a stay away. Don't touch. You're a sinner. God is holy. It did give a hope in the sacrificial system of a time coming when one would pay for our sins, when one would robe us, when one would bring us into the presence of God. But as long as that tabernacle stood as long as those tablets of the covenant was in that box, and as long as they were not fulfilled, there was no access. But the moment they were fulfilled, the moment it was finished, and everything that was said was finished and done, completed, then the way was opened, the new and living way talked about in Hebrews chapter 10. 
John MacArthur has some excellent comments on Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. He says this, One of the key theological themes in Hebrews is that all believers now have direct access to God under the new covenant and therefore may approach the throne of God boldly, 4, 16, 10, 22. One's hope is in the very presence of God into which he follows the Savior, Romans, uh, Hebrews 6, 19, 20. The primary teaching symbolized by the tabernacle service was that believers under the covenant of law did not have direct access to the presence of God but were shut out of the holies of holy. The, the book of Hebrews may be summarized in this way. Believers in Jesus Christ as God's perfect sacrifice for sin have the perfect high priest through whom ministries everything is new and better than under the covenant of law. Good stuff. Good stuff. It seems to me this is totally undercutting the new covenant. It's taking the gut out of imputation of the righteousness of Christ to fit us to stand justified with a conscience free and to come boldly to a throne of grace. Not brazenly, but boldly to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. One of the things that amazes me is that the Reformed Baptists, by and large, have also basically given up the reality and the fullness of the New Covenant. David Kingdon wrote a book, Children of, the, Children of Abraham. And one of the things he said was this. A great deal of Baptist apologetic, as it seems to me, has failed to come to terms with the indubitable fact that the covenant of grace, although it exhibits diversity of administration in the time of promise and the time of fulfillment, is nonetheless one covenant. One covenant. As we shall see in a subsequent chapter, Reformed Pado Baptist <coughs> argue from this fact to a wrong conclusion, <coughs> namely, <coughs> pardon me, that as children want, were circumcised under the old, so they ought to be under the new. And our brother Steve took care of this the other day. Nevertheless, their basic contention is correct. The covenant of grace is one in all ages. In my view, Baptists will never seriously disturb Reformed Beto Baptist until they see this. The divisive atomistic approach of so much contemporary Baptist apologetics is about as effective at this point as a shotgun against a Sherman tank. I think he's giving away the chickens in the chicken house. I don't know of anybody who was converted to the Baptist position through the book. Now, there may have been some. I've been at this for a long time. I don't know of a single Presbyterian church that's ever become a Reformed Baptist church. But I know dozens and dozens and dozens of, of Baptist churches that have become Presbyterian. I only know of about five Presbyterian pastors who have become Baptists. I think I know hundreds of elders and pastors from Reformed Baptist churches who have become Presbyterians. If you invite me back next year, I'll tell you why I think that is. But not today. We don't have time for that. The words commonly called and the phrase one covenant with two administration 
takes the discussion out of biblical exegesis, as I said a moment ago, and puts it totally into the realm of logic and systematic theology. The administrations of the one covenant of grace do not differ in substance. That's a phrase that Westminster Confession uses. In reality, a covenant theologian does not have a real and true new covenant. He has an older and newer version of the one and same covenant of grace. <clears throat> Williamson says in his book, all of this leads to certain important conclusions. Upon the basis of this one covenant, there is one true church extending through all ages. And then he quotes Acts chapter 7, verse 38, if you go there for a moment. This is his proof text. This is the proof text to prove that there's one church. What was the text I said I wanted here? Acts 7, 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. Have you no shame? <laughs> Have you no shame? <laughs> to use that text of scripture to justify the church, that Israel is the church in the Old Testament. How about the assembly? That's the word assembly, the word church. The word church means nothing. And what about the Gentiles when they had the in Acts chapter was it 19 where they where the assembly a Gentile assembly it's the same thing well if this is a church then that assembly was a church also I can't believe they would use that as a text to prove the church is in the Old Testament and the or rather the church is Israel and Israel is a church now it, it seems to me that we must avoid two mistakes in our understanding in our searching of scripture number one we mustn't treat the old covenant believer with the ability to experience things which are beyond the revelation that he has. Now that's important. A, a believer cannot have an experience that transcends his own knowledge at that time. We dare not believe that an old covenant believer sat in his tent and studied the footnotes in the Schofield Reference Bible. <laughs> Likewise, we cannot believe he sat in his tent and studied the Westminster Confession of Faith. He didn't have either one. Pardon? I'll have to catch you later. At the end of the day, Covenant theology does not have a true new covenant. They only have a new administration of one and the same covenant. A covenant new in nature and substance is not possible in covenant theology. There must be a continuity of the one and same covenant of grace in all ages for all people. The very term new covenant necessitates discontinuity. You cannot have an old covenant being replaced by a new covenant without having discontinuity. This is why covenant theology cannot accept the two biblical covenants in the scriptures as the two main covenants. And the two main covenants in the scriptures textually, according to Hebrews chapter 8 and according to Galatians chapter 4, are the covenant made at Sinai, which is the old covenant or first covenant, and the new covenant which fulfills it and takes its place.
when they adopt two purely non-biblical theological covenants, the covenant of works with Adam before he fell and the covenant of grace with Adam after he fell, Genesis 2.17, Genesis 3.15, as the two major covenants, they've disowned the new covenant as a true, new, and different in substance covenant. Its status is reduced to a new administration of a previous covenant. I want to look at several key texts of Scripture that have a direct bearing on the subject of continuity and discontinuity. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And if you compare and combine the translation of this text by both the NIV and the New King James, you have a vital point of New Covenant theology as well as a partial answer to this whole problem of continuity and discontinuity. Here's the text in the King James. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now let me read it in the NIV. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. If we understand this text, it will go a long way in settling any discussion on how much of the old has ended and how much of the new is really new. Let's look at the text in detail. The King James says new creature and the NIV says new creation. And there is a difference. This is a much quoted verse and it's used almost exclusively to prove the necessity of a radical moral change, moral change in a person's life when they make a profession of faith in Christ. A new creature is said to mean a change. You don't live like you used to live. You have been totally changed in your sinful habits. They've been gone. You've taken on new godly habits and so on. Philip's paraphrase translates this way. If a man is in Christ, he becomes a new person altogether. The past is finished and gone. Everything has become fresh and new. A paraphrase is usually very helpful if the paraphrase has caught the truth of the text. But if it hasn't caught the truth of the text, it really is harmful. And I love J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of the New Testament. On this place, I think he missed the boat. In this text, Paul is not talking about the moral, or not, I should say primarily, is not talking primarily about the moral change in the believer, even though the text can surely include that in its meaning. Paul's point is not emphasizing a moral change, but a historical change. Therefore, if a man in Christ, he is in a new age. He's in a new dispensation, if you would please let me use that word one time. We have entered the new age. We had a discussion on our chat room. And my friend Chad Bresson, who is here, says, we are resurrection children. We are resurrection people. We live on this side of the cross. We live in the age of the resurrection. A new covenant believer lives on this side of the cross. He's part of the Christ creation that was established on the redemptive work of Christ and the advent of the Holy Spirit. The new creation is the church viewed as the body of Christ or the new man in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 22 that was created by the coming of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. The in Christ experience, where a believer is united to Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement is a post-Pentecost experience 
that's built on the established new covenant and our Lord being seated on a throne with all power and all authority. In this new creation of which Paul speaks, all things in the old without a single exception have passed away, King James. The old has gone, NIV. The old has served its purpose and we've moved on to new and better things. The text is clear, the old is obsolete. If Paul is talking about a moral change, who among us can say all things with no exception have once and forever eras tense passed away? I can't say that. In the new creation of 2 Corinthians 5.17, all things without exception have become eras tense new. That's sinless perfection if you're talking about moral change. Just as there's a new covenant that's radically new and different that replaces an old covenant that's obsolete, so everything that the old covenant brought into being has passed away and has been replaced with something better. Now listen to the statement carefully. However, the new things that have replaced the old were clearly prophesied in the old as coming. The new that came was not a surprise. That was exactly what was expected and what was looked forward to because it was clearly promised to the believers in the Old Covenant. We believe in promise fulfillment. We don't start at ground zero in the New Covenant. We build on the old. There's only one storyline in Scripture. The New Covenant does not start a new storyline but insists the storyline has moved from promise to fulfillment. In a sense, there is both a total continuity and a total discontinuity. Some New Covenant people miss this point. Look up 1 Peter chapter 1 for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven which things angels desire to look into. <coughs> when we insist that everything in the new is totally new, that does not mean that it is not in any way related to what went before. We agree with the statement the new in, is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. I repeat, promise is fulfillment. I mean promise and fulfillment is the principle. The new that has come and in which we rejoice gives us the very things that Old Covenant believers looked forward to in hope. They only looked forward to the time is what they didn't understand. They understood what was coming and they had a great hope in that. And you can't read the experience and the fulfillment of that hope back into their experience. Right. Nor can you deny that they had the hope clearly back in the Old Covenant. We're not in any sense suggesting that the old equals bad and the new equals good. And that's what some people think we're saying. We're insisting the old and the new are both good, but one is better than the other. 
The commandment is just as just, Jude, and holy today as it was when Paul gave it, I mean when God gave it and Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. But its status has totally changed. Its function and its authority has radically changed under the new covenant. Remember that God is the author of both the old and the new. He gave the old for a specific purpose to perform a specific job. And then he replaced the old when it had accomplished its purposes. We don't live in the shadows anymore. We live in the light of the full day. The old covenant believer had a shadow. And a shadow is better than nothing. A shadow gives you the assurance of the reality. If there is no reality, there is no shadow. But don't confuse the shadow with the reality. And don't try to read the reality into the shadow. That's what covenant theology does. There is a sense in which Hebrews is a commentary on 2 Corinthians 5.17. The Jews may well have chided the Christians and taunted them with something like this. You guys don't have a true religion. How can you have a religion? You don't have a temple, you don't have a priest, you don't have a law, you don't have a covenant. You don't have any of the things that are necessary to a true religion. You have nothing. And the Christians would have answered with the book of Hebrews. Yes, we do. <laughs> we have everything that you have. And ours is better than yours. <laughs> our priest, our law, our sacrifice, everything we have is better than yours. The writer of Hebrews, is, is, it's a wonderful book. It's just, it's just a wonderful book. And he emphasizes how much better Christ is. than He's better than the apostles. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses. He's better than... But he never once says he's better than Abraham. And Abraham is the key guy. If he can't bring Abraham in and prove he's better than Abraham, he hasn't really made his case. But he does it in a unique manner. Is that right? See, the, the, the Jews also could have said to them, you're Johnny come lately. You, you, you have no prophets. You, you have no history. You have no authenticity. And the Christians would have said, oh, you want, you, want, you want to talk about history? You want to talk about authenticity? You want to talk about prophets? You, you want to go back to Moses? You want to go back to Abraham? Well, don't stop with Abraham. Keep on going. Go on back to Melchizedek. And he has four chapters about Melchizedek. And he says, that prophet paid tithes. Your prophet, Abraham, the one you want to boast about, he paid tithes to our high priest. We had a high priest in Jerusalem. He was a new covenant high priest, by the way. That's amazing the way he did that. I used, I used to say that you could read those three verses in the book of Genesis all your lifetime and you would never come up with what the writer of Hebrews did. And then David Mars punched my balloon. David Mars said, that's just good exegesis. It is. It is. My friend Lloyd over here, he, he knows a lot about Jewish writings. And I asked him one time, I said, what do the Jews do with Melchizedek? He said, they don't even touch it. <laughs> they don't have any part of it. Why? Because of where it leads. You can't look at it. You can't exegete it 
without leading it to Jesus Christ as the true high priest. All things without exception have become new. That's Hebrews. The priest has become new, the law has become new, so on and so forth. John MacArthur said it well. Quote, throughout the book of Hebrews, the many comparisons and contrasts are basically between Christianity and Judaism. This truth is essential to proper, basically, be, this truth is essential to properly, properly interpret this epistle. The central theme and message of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of the new covenant over the old. That is, of Christianity to Judaism. Within this theme are the sub-themes of the superiority of the new priesthood to the old, the sacrifice to the, the new sacrifice to the old sacrifices, the new mediator to the old ones, and so on. This is the key that unlocks every section of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is not contrasting two kinds of Christianity. He is not contrasting immature Christians and mature ones. He is contrasting Judaism and Christianity, the unsaved Jew in Judaism and the redeemed Jew in Christianity. He is contrasting the substance and the shadow, the pattern and the reality, the visible and the invisible, the simile and the real thing, the facsimile and the real thing, the type and the antitype, the picture and the actual. The Old Testament is essential to be, is essentially God's revelation of pictures and types which are fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, therefore, compares and contrasts the two parts of God's revelation that our division in the Bible reflects. Almost universally, the Puritans missed the boat in the book of Hebrews. If you, if you, if you want to see a mishmash, you read some of the Puritans on Hebrews and the, and the, the symbolism and the stuff that they get into is just absolutely beyond, beyond belief. The realities of which the old prophesied have come into being in the new covenant. The second text we want to look at is Romans 6.14. This is a sweeping statement, and it's especially important for our study. Covenant theology will agree with much of what I said about 2 Corinthians 5.17 in Hebrews. They will even pay lip service to the end of the Old Covenant as long as the Ten Commandments are first excised out of the Old Covenant. And it's becoming popular now to say that the Ten Commandments are the law of the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant is totally gone, but the law of the Old Covenant is trans-covenantal, trans and it is still here. How in the world can you get the law out of the Old Covenant when the covenant is the law and the law is the covenant? Romans 6.14 presents a real problem for any view of the law that wants total continuity in all ages for all people of the Ten Commandments, or as they call them, the moral law, to be the universal rule and standard of judgment. There can only be one canon of conduct in covenant theology. Paul's statement seems clear that a Christian is free from the law <coughs> in a sense that a, Jew, that a Jew never could be free, and a Jew was under the law in a sense that a Christian dare not be. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for, be sure you miss that, I may be sure you don't miss that little for. For, you're not under the law, 
but under grace. One of the important things about this text is that it highlights the fact that our being not under the law is somehow directly connected with the assurance that sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law. If you don't understand what it means to be not under law, then you have effectively destroyed one of the basic helps of holiness. The text clearly makes law and grace to be antithetical. In Romans 5.20, if you look at that passage, here's Paul's classic statement on the law. Here is the classic statement of the law. If you want to study Paul on law, here's where you begin. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered. The law had a historical beginning and a historical end. If, if it was always here and didn't start at Sinai, then why would it say the law entered? The law entered for what purpose? That the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Woo! Can you imagine a Jew hearing that? Can you imagine a rabbi, a Pharisee, listening to Paul preach and have Paul make this statement? First of all, he'd have been horrified that, that Paul would even suggest that the purpose of the law was to make sin to be more pronounced. It was to bring sin out. He'd say, you're accusing God and accusing the law of being responsible for man's sin. You ought to have your tongue cut out. But he makes it even worse. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Ooh, can you imagine Paul saying that? He got to pick up the stones, get ready to stone him to death. Imagine sinning for the glory of God. Paul immediately raises the objection that he knows must be in the minds of his hearers. In chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what Romans 5.20 sounds like on the surface. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now listen to me carefully for a moment. If your congregation never accuses you of this, you're not preaching justification by faith. If you can so preach the gospel and guard it where nobody can ever imagine that you're saying this, you're not preaching the gospel of Paul. You're not preaching the gospel of the New Testament. Now, Romans chapter 6, verses 2 through 13, that's the answer to this objection. So whatever those verses mean, it has to contribute to understanding the objection because that's what Paul begins his objection and he lays out the objection in verses 2 through 13. And he comes to this conclusion when he has finished laying this out. Verse 14, he comes to this conclusion. For sin shall not have dominion. That's the conclusion to the argument. Sin can't have dominion over you, he says. It's impossible. You can't be in Christ. You can't be under grace. You can't be not under law and ever perish. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Now, 
the most amazing thing to me about the law and Paul in this passage is that to a legalist, the very thing that a legalist believes will lead to sin is the very thing that is essential to true holy living in the New Testament scriptures. That's amazing. The basic premise of a legalist is this. You must use the law if you're ever going to have holy living. The law and the law alone can produce holiness. And Paul's whole thesis is the one thing the law cannot do is produce holiness because all it can do is stir up sin, whether it be in a non-Christian or a Christian. The absolute assurance that I can never be condemned, therefore there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The assurance that I can never be lost is the thing that makes me love God and makes me want to please him. Is that right? The ground of holiness is assurance of salvation. The ground of holy living is the realization I am in Christ. I don't know which one of the queens of England it was, but she was a rascal. She was really a rebel. And she was being tutored, and when she was 13 years old, she said to her tutor, if I understand this correctly, and this system, I'm going to be the next queen. And her tutor said, that's correct. And she thought for a long moment and said, well, if I'm going to be a queen, I'm going to start acting like a queen. And her life changed from that day. It is the realization that I am in Christ that makes me want to be holy. Is that right? It makes us want to please our Father in heaven. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, it raises the next logical question. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? See, that helps us understand what Romans 6, 14 means. Romans 6, 14 is saying you can't be lost. You're eternally secure. You're under grace. You can't perish. Well, if that's true, if it's possible for me to never come into condemnation because I'm eternally secure in Christ and under his grace, then doesn't it follow that I can live like the devil? And that's the next objection. A man came to Spurgeon and said, if I believed your eternally security, I would, love, I would live like the devil. Spurgeon said, of course you would. That's because you're a devil. <laughs> you will live like who you are. Who you really are. Is being totally free from the law, that's total discontinuity, is not a license to sin, although it might appear to be that on the surface. When, when you read Romans 6.14, you ought to think of a great hymn, Free from the Law. And I don't know about you, but I am sick and tired of people mocking that hymn. You mock that hymn and you just might be mocking the gospel. I challenge you to show me one word in that hymn that isn't theologically correct. If it is seen in the light of justification, free from the law, O oh happy condition, Jesus hath died and there is remission. Cursed by the fall, redeemed by the, cursed by the law. What's the next phrase? 
bruised, cursed by the law, bruised by the fall, grace hath redeemed us once more. Man, that's gospel. That's justification by faith. And that's what Paul is talking about. The one word that you'll never read concerning the nation of Israel is, or the, or the one thing you, you, won't, you, you will have in the case of Israel is the idea of punishment. And that's the one thing you'll never find in the new covenant. Punishment. You will find chastisement for sin. You will have your father deal with you very roughly for your own good. But you will never have punishment. God only punishes sin one of two places. In the cross or in hell. But he doesn't punish. He disciplines. And there's a big difference between those two things. When your son or daughter disobeys you, you do not bring him into the room, put on a black robe, and read to them, now you have disobeyed thus and thus rule in our household. And this is going to be your punishment. That's not the way you deal with your children. The idea of freedom from the law that's total continuity, if we understand what Paul means. It does not mean we're not under the scriptures as a rule of life. It doesn't mean we're not under objective truths and objective rules in the New Testament scriptures. It doesn't mean that at all. One of the ways to illustrate not under law but under grace is diplomatic immunity. A couple of weeks ago, a guy was caught smoking in the laboratory in a plane and made a joke about his shoe and a bomb. He came off the plane, I think it was on a Tuesday, and Wednesday he was on another plane on the way back to his country. Why wasn't he arrested? Diplomatic immunity. Diplomatic immunity means that you cannot be touched by the law of our land. When, a, when an ambassador comes from, from France, he has diplomatic immunity, meaning that he cannot be persecuted, he cannot, not persecuted, he cannot be prosecuted with American justice. A diplomat can kill somebody in front of 10 witnesses, and all we can do is send him back to his own country and refuse to allow him to come. Why? He's free diplomatically. Diplomatic immunity. A Christian has diplomatic immunity. Now, you would think that diplomats would be the most ungodly people in the world. You'd think they would just live like the devil, but that's not the case. A true ambassador will do everything he possibly can to obey the law of our land. In fact, if he's a good ambassador, the first thing he wants to do is, what is your country like? What does it believe? I want to act in such a way that you will think well of my country. And a Christian lives the way he lives because he wants his father to be glorified. Is that right? We have diplomatic immunity. If we were with a diplomat and we were in a hurry, we'd say, how about going a little bit faster? And he'd say, I'm sorry, I'm going 65, that's the speed limit. Yeah, but you can't be arrested. What are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of anything. But I want you to think of my country as good country. See, that, that's the whole motivation. That's the whole motif of the new covenant. The, the trouble with talking about new covenant is it's an atmosphere that you get. It's like the Supreme Court judge says about uh, pornography. says, maybe I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And there is a sense in which grace controls a mind and the heart that you can't define with rules. 
Diplomatic immunity. Another way we can illustrate freedom from the law is a presidential pardon. Some of you may be old enough to remember when Richard Nixon got in trouble. And Richard Nixon was pardoned by President Ford. There's still an argument about whether he should have done that or whether he shouldn't have done that, but the, once Ford pardoned him, nobody could touch him. The FBI, no judge, no Supreme Court, he was free because he had been pardoned by the highest authority in the land. And the Christian is free because he's been pardoned by the highest authority. Is that right? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if he said I'm free, if he said I'm guiltless, if he said I'm justified, then I don't care what you say. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what anybody says. When he speaks, that's the end of it. Is that right? We understand freedom from the law, change of law in this way. If a Baptist church becomes a Presbyterian church, one of the first things they do is write a new, new covenant, a new constitution. And by the way, I deliberately use the word Baptist become Presbyterian because that's the way it happens. It's not the other way around, unfortunately. But now you have a new constitution. Now here's the question. What's the relationship legally of the new Presbyterian congregation to the old constitution of the Baptist congregation? And the answer is none. It is totally 100% null and void. Nobody can get up in a congregational meeting and read the constitution of the Baptist church out of which you came because that's no longer legally in force. And that's exactly the relationship of the New Covenant Christian to the Old Covenant. Not to the Old Testament scriptures, but to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is totally 100% gone. The covenant that established Israel and Israel's laws and Israel's government and everything about Israel. Israel's life and worship was totally controlled by the Old Covenant and the life and the worship of the Christian is controlled by the New Covenant. He uses the old, but he interprets it through the light of the new. We don't have a list in the sense that you had a list in the Old Testament. There was no such thing as Christian liberty in the Old Testament. You didn't have a discussion about, well, this is the way you understand it, and you can do this under your Christian liberty. You know, when, when Paul was, they got, tried to get Paul in to answer the question, should you eat meat offered idols? He never did put that on a list. You would think it would be very easy for Paul to say, okay, let's just put this in a no-no list or we'll put it in an okay list. No. The other thing that amazes me is that he sided theologically with the strong brother. He says, you're right, I agree with you, but you're wrong in your attitude. You're sitting against your brother even though you're theologically correct. I've struggled a long time with this idea of how do we understand things that are not covered in Scripture in the New Covenant. And you know some of the things as bestiality, sin, all these, and so on. I used to say, you're asking the wrong question. And then the other night in bed, I work out my theology in bed <laughs> and get up and pray the notes so I don't forget it. And it's not a question of asking the wrong question. 
If you come to me and ask me about something that is not clearly covered in Scripture, I'm going to say to you something like this. I'm going to say, well, you're asking the wrong person. Don't ask me. I'm not your master. And you do have a master. And your master has commanded you to do everything to his honor and his glory. Is this to his honor and his glory? Your commander, your master, has invited you into his presence to discuss any problem you have. Your master has promised to give you wisdom if you ask him, so ask him. He's given you the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. Ask him. He demands you glorify him in all things. He's told you that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, so the very fact that you're asking me means that you, you must have some doubts along the way here, so is this applicable to you? He's told you to think about things which are pure and good and righteous. And so, does this fit into that category? So you're asking the wrong question. Don't ask me. Ask your master. By the way, I understand your master is very jealous and protective of his servants. And he doesn't appreciate people messing with them. So I don't want to mess with you. I don't want to get in the middle. If your master says it's okay for you to do this, it's perfectly okay with me. And if he doesn't say it's okay, then I can't possibly make it to be okay. You're asking the wrong person. You're asking the wrong person. I don't know if that helps, but it helped me. That's what I'm going to say the next time you ask me a question I can't answer. <laughs> Let's pray a minute. Lord, we're glad that you are our master. And your yoke is easy. Your burden is light. We thank you from the depths of our being for making us your people by sovereign electing grace. For calling us out of ignorance and stupidity and darkness. We thank you for this time together when we can wrestle with your truth. And we want to understand in order that we might obey and please you. We may have some different convictions, but our affections are in the same person. We pray that you would sift out those things which are of the flesh and cause them to be driven from our mind as the wind blows away the chaff. And those things which are the truth, even though this is the first time we ever heard them, give us grace to gather them into our heart and our life and make them a part of our very being. And we will praise you forever for Christ's sake. Amen.